0: Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Deadly pollution from trucks is driving change at the seaport of Los Angeles.
1: We're now causing 3,500 premature deaths. And I said, well, half of that is 1,750 people. We can't kill 1,750 people. We have to have a standard of reaching... The healthy air.
0: And now they do. The ship comes in for electric trucks at LA's port. It could be a model around the seven seas. Also, hard times for a hardwood forest in Indonesia. Crime and corruption devastate ancient teak trees. A grassroots
2: effort tries to save the forest and a traditional way of life. Villagers who live near a forest are encouraged to help keep the forest intact as a reward. They can use land surrounding the forest for their needs. They're also entitled to 25% of the earnings from the forest produce. These stories this week on Living on Earth. Stick around.
3: Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm.
0: It's an encore edition of Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman, in for Steve Kerwood. The Los Angeles seaport is the busiest in the country. Here, cargo ships arrive from Asia their steel containers packed tight with everything from running shoes and toys to TVs and clothes. The containers are then offloaded by giant cranes and lifted onto the backs of waiting trucks. The process is fast, but also filthy. The trucks are a major source of soot or particle pollution in the L.A. region, but soon the port will clean up its act when 25 all-electric trucks arrive. And as Living on Earth's Ingrid Lobet reports, it could spark a change in seaports around the world.
4: 40,000 times a day, heavy diesel rigs scurry in, out, and around the port of Los Angeles, picking up, dropping off, and just waiting around, idling. Dirty air and noise are two of neighbors' and workers' main complaints about the port. So when David Freeman became chief of the Harbor Commission two years ago, he took on these issues with zeal.
1: When I got here on this commission, I was handed this report. It said we're going to cut pollution in half back to what it was in 2001. And I looked at the report, and it said that we're now causing 3,500 premature deaths. And I said, well, half of that is 1,750 people. We can't kill 1,750 people. We have to have a standard of reaching healthy air.
4: Freeman, who had decades of experience running large electric utilities, soon began to push for the creation of an all-electric truck.
1: We've been told by the experts that whether it's LNG or biodiesel, whatever you burn, if you burn something, you're going to have a tiny, small particulate matter. And these folks are right there at lung level breathing that stuff. So to have a vehicle that will not burn anything, just when you run on electricity, is a... Fundamental cleanup. This is not show, this is really tail. Let's
5: we'll start it up here. It's like a lot quieter than your standard diesel truck, huh? That's yeah, real nice.
4: Michael Flugel is a vocational laborer at the port and drives a lot of heavy equipment.
5: We're real proud of it. When I got involved with the truck myself, you know, I had my doubts. Uh, but we've through everything but the kids in sync at it and it just keeps performing so it's just it's, it's short shortest spectacular it's uh, uh we've hauled as much as 68,000 pounds on this truck and it just keeps keeps on ticking you know
4: Experts agree running a vehicle on electricity, even when half of it comes from coal, as here, is much cleaner than burning diesel. But David Freeman says the port plans to run the trucks on solar and already has the first megawatt out to bid. The person who shepherded this project from let's do it to here it is, is Balwinder Samra. He's an electric vehicle expert who helped golf carts go electric and sold electric delivery trucks in Mexico. He remembers when electric forklifts were new.
6: I still remember customers used to not believe us when we would go in and say this one is electric. And... I was very surprised once the economic analysis got around, that industry switched very fast.
4: Samra was struck by how short the hauling distances were, usually less than 25 miles to regional warehouses and railroad connections, and often less than half a mile from one spot in the port to another.
6: It was an ideal opportunity for electric vehicles.
4: And with the cost of diesel skyrocketing, the timing seemed right, too. The electric trucks can cost $70,000 more than diesel trucks up front, but battery recharging saves money compared
6: to fuel. Just an example, if we tried to do this in 1980s, we had dollar a gallon type stuff. So I would be right now telling you we can save you $5,000 a year. Not, not as compelling, is it? Today, because of the pricing... We have a $35,000 argument, which at least perks up somebody's ears and say, let's talk about this more.
4: The team chose traditional lead-acid batteries for price and reliability. They hope a next-generation battery will increase charging speed and capacity. To keep the trucks operating, workers have to recharge them four hours at night and also briefly during shift changes. They use a smart charger that can charge four vehicles at a time and adjust the flow of juice to each one, depending on need. Samura's company, Balcon, is still working out the kinks in those distribution algorithms. He says when the frustrations of new product development weigh him down, he remembers the reception the first truck got from port employees.
6: There were like 20 people whipping out their cell phones and trying to take the, the images of that thing. It was uh, very exciting.
4: Officials think half the 8,000 trucks needed at the port could be electric. That could potentially eliminate 200 tons annually of one principal pollutant, Nox. Even before the port of L.A.'s electric trucks are announced, Samra says he's been deluged with calls.
6: A lot of interest from West Coast ports, Canada, Italy, uh, Pacific Asia. There's a lot of people calling us. uh, It just seems like a lot of people were waiting for this to happen.
4: Over the last decade, the Southern California seaports have been shaken by their reputation as the largest polluters in the nation's most polluted region. Angry communities have sued and shut down nearly all port expansion. Now the new leadership at the ports hopes they'll be able to do something that didn't seem possible a few years ago, expand and get much cleaner at the same time. For Living on Earth, I'm Ingrid Lobet in Los Angeles.
0: Ragweed allergy sufferers beware the Ides of August and beyond. According to the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology, August is the start of ragweed season, bringing itchy eyes to 36 million Americans. Alaskans are among the first to feel the effects, and experts say the gesundheit problem there is getting worse due to climate change. In Alaska, temperatures have risen four times as fast as the rest of the planet, and not only does the longer growing season mean escalating pollen counts, it also means biting bugs and stinging insects or having a field day. Jeffrey Demain has felt the pain. He's founder and director of the Alaska Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology Center in Anchorage. Dr. Demain, welcome to Living on Earth.
7: Well, thank you very much. It's my pleasure to be here.
0: So has the allergy business been picking up?
7: Well, actually, we, we stay pretty busy throughout the state. Uh, your, your comment is correct. We certainly have seen more intense pollen cycles, both in, in number of pollen levels as well as duration of the cycles over the past few years. I would say our tree pollen cycle has increased by three weeks and the same with our grass pollen cycle. What about stings from insects? Well, that's a very interesting topic. Uh, This is an area that I've been researching for a little over a year. We experienced our first two deaths in Alaska from yellowjacket stings in 2006. This occurred in the Fairbanks. Well, that alerted our attention, so we started looking at why did this happen, what changed. And when we started looking at this, we found that there was about a tenfold increase in the number of yellow jackets in Fairbanks. Uh, there, A biologist captured several uh, just on his property and estimated that he killed 12,000 yellow jackets just there alone. Uh, We looked at the data from the hospital in Fairbanks and found that the number of people seeking medical attention in the emergency department for stings rose from approximately 40 a year to 178 a year. And when we took that back to between 1990 and 1994, there were actually zero uh, occurrences. So there was definitely a rise in Fairbanks. And then when we look at the state of Alaska, we looked at 133,000 Medicaid recipients and looked at how many patients each year has sought care because of stings. We've seen over a twofold rise throughout the state, and that's been a continual rise uh, since the beginning of that database in 1999.
0: So why are we seeing more stings and more uh, cases of allergies in Alaska?
7: Well, we've been following the changes in climate. Now, changes in climate not only include temperature warming during the summer, but also higher winter winter temperatures, and that actually may be the more important one. But in addition to that, with these warming temperatures and more precipitation, we're seeing the migration of alpine tundra. So it's actually disappearing and it's being recaptured by other flora and fauna, which is going to create more grasslands, more forests, and actually probably relocate uh, and redistribute certain insect species.
0: I was reading your research and you say that 90%
7: of the tundra in Alaska is going to be lost in the next 100 years? That's what the prediction is. Uh, and a lot of these predictions were made in 2001, and we're, right now, just seven years later, we're 30 years ahead of those predictions.
0: So what does that mean in terms of allergies and insect bites going forward?
7: Well, we feel that there's going to continue to be a higher risk of human encounter with venomous insects. We also see that with stinging caterpillars that that entered Alaska in 2004. You can see this happening even in the lower 48, uh, where fire ants are moving up the east and west coast, and we're now seeing further northern migration of Africanized bees. So I I believe we're seeing other patterns. What are
0: the medical implications of, of climate change you think we'll see in the future?
7: Well, I think you know you brought up allergies, and I do believe we're going to see an increase in severity of simple allergic rhinitis, which is actually very uh, significant, and it fa- affects people's quality of life. Along with that asthma occurs in at least a third of patients that have allergies. So I believe we're going to see intensification of asthma, especially patients that have pollen sensitivities. Uh, We're already seeing a significant impact with some of this redistribution of insects and people having allergic reactions and requiring more aggressive therapy for that. In fact, we're now seeing fatal events as a result of it. And I think beyond that, if you step back again a little further, we're looking at what else is impacted by climate change. Uh, There's very, very, very good evidence that we're seeing dramatic increases in malaria, dengue fever, viral encephalitis throughout the world, even as close as Mexico and South America. And these are directly impacted by climate change. Even things like hantavirus in the southwestern United States, as well as uh, plague in the southwestern United States uh, and West Nile virus. All of these are probably a reflection of shifts in the environment and shifts in climate. Dr. DeMaine, thank you very much. You're very welcome, and it was my pleasure. Dr. Jeffrey DeMaine is director of the Alaska
0: Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology Center in Anchorage. Trekking Java in search of a forest and a nation's future. Just ahead on Living on Earth. It's an encore edition of Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. The rich forests of Indonesia have helped fuel the island nation's fantastic economic growth. The tropical woods were turned into pulp for paper and hardwood furniture finding ready markets around the world. But Indonesia's economic miracle came at a devastating price for the nation where millions of acres were deforested and the world. Indonesia is the third largest emitter of greenhouse gases, and 85% of that comes from cutting down trees, largely in the lush lowlands of the island of Java, where Michael Lawton has our story, originally produced by Radio Deutsche Welle and Java's
2: Radio Base FM. A roof of green leaves, the sound of trickling water, tall trees towering to the sky, wildlife. That's what people usually associate with forests. But if you're looking for them in the teak forests on the island of Java, you could be very disappointed. We trekked through some of the Teak forests on Java, from Bojanigoro in the east to Randublatung Blora in the west. We started early in the morning just before the first downpours, but a merciless sun was pounding on our backs, rivers of sweat were trickling down our faces. The only thing that remotely reminded us of the typical feel of a forest is the sound of dry teak leaves crunching under our feet and perhaps the sound of birds chirruping from afar. The teak trees here make up a somewhat unnatural forest. They're planted in rows with regular spaces between them. Most of the trees are mere saplings. The diameter of the trunks is still around 30 centimetres. Pojo-Negoro was once known as Teak City. It was surrounded by the vast teak forest of Java. Yanti, an elderly woman living in the village of Sumberjo in the district of Margomulyo, is still able to tell her grandchildren about those days.
3: It was very comfortable. There used to be mahogany trees on the left and teak trees to our right, big and tall ones. Monkeys were living in the forest back then, but nowadays there's nothing left.
2: This teak forest was once one of the oldest and best-managed forests in Indonesia. But now there are many problems which threaten to destroy state teak forests in Java – over forest fires, illegal logging and theft are just a few of them. There's also corruption and mismanagement by the state forestry authorities. The political change which came with the downfall of President Suharto in 1998 proved to be disastrous for Java's teak forests. People started cutting down teak trees and literally plundered the forests.
6: masyarakat. <laughs>
2: It was crazy. People were no longer scared to go into the forest with trucks, cars, and even motorbikes. Exi Mahardana Wijaya, an environmental activist in Randublatung, tries to describe the damage done. They took axes and saws with them. This was an expression of anger because most Indonesians never felt that the forest belonged to them. A lot of state forestry offices were burned down. Between 1998 and 2002, tens of thousands of hectares of woods were destroyed. Indonesian forest rangers had to stand by and watch helplessly. Sometimes they were even chased and beaten up by the people, says Robi, a forest ranger from Bojanegoro.
1: In those days, they were after us, not the other way around. We were only two or three rangers, and there were whole villages plundering the woods. At that time, the scale of thefts was really unbelievable.
2: According to some figures, around 150,000 hectares of teak forest were destroyed by poor villagers following the political and social chaos in the post-Suharto era. But the plundering still continues, even if at a lower level. Chris Tomo, head of the Forest Stakeholders Association in the region of Parengan-Tuban, says that although vast areas of forest have been destroyed, it's not benefited the local people. They still live in poverty. These actions have not made any impact on the lives of the villagers who live near the forest. Their economic situation has not improved. Outsiders are still the ones who reap the money from the plundering. This is our main concern. We have to tackle both problems at the same time. On the one hand, we need to preserve our forests. But on the other hand, we want to help the people around here economically. The forest destruction between 1998 and 2002 is a dark chapter in the history of the state forest company Perhutani, which is part of the Indonesian Forestry Department. The Indonesian government amended the law on forest preservation in 1999. In 2002, based on this new law as well as past experiences, Perutani designed a program called Community-Based Forest Preservation. This program tries to include locals in forest preservation measures. Villagers who live near a forest are encouraged to help keep the forest intact as a reward. They can use land surrounding the forest for their needs. They're also entitled to 25% of the earnings from the forest produce. Community-based forest preservation might sound like a good idea at first, but the programme has yet to show any evidence of success. We went to visit one village, Randu Blatung, which has become infamous. It now has a nickname, Kampung Kaum Blandong, or the village of the pillagers. Three people agreed to talk to us. All three of them are Blandong, or illegal loggers. One of them, Heru, which is not his real name, says that government programs have never been introduced into his village.
6: We can be called thieves
2: since we're actually operating without having any permits from Pehutani. But we really are forced to do this. If we don't know where to get money to buy food, we go into the forest. But are the illegal loggers and the thieves the only ones to blame for the destruction of Java's teak forest? Giuliani, an environmental activist in Bogor blames the sketchy and ambiguous measures which the government has tried to introduce to preserve the teak forest. A so-called master plan for East Java states that the area of the forest is to be increased, but no one knows how this is going to be implemented.
3: They penampil. say the forest is to be increased from 28 to 36 percent. But at the same time, there's going to be more land for industry and housing. So, what are they going to sacrifice to plant more trees? Are they going to stop building houses or are they going to take away farmland? That's not possible and it's even more unlikely that they just limit industry in favour of some trees.
2: Another problem, adds Yuliani, is the unclear definition of forest areas. Most of the 2.5 million hectares of the Perhutani land, which is categorised as forest land, has been cleared of trees entirely. Some patches are barren, other parts are used as farmland. What's left of the teak forest is a commercial forest, planted to be harvested, and not a conservation forest. Until the trees have grown enough to build a new, natural forest, the land is going to remain barren and unwelcoming. The old Javanese forest only exists in fairy tales, the kind that Yanti tells to her grandchildren. Our story about
0: Java's forest comes to us courtesy of Radio Deutsche Welle and Radio Base FM. It was reported by Jin Jinanjar and Ari Bathara and presented by Michael Lawton. Java's forests are just a part of the planet that's in peril. According to the UN report Global Environment Outlook 4, the world is hurtling headlong to disaster. Achim Steiner is executive director of the panel that produced the study.
6: The sobering and not surprising findings are that on virtually all major variables of development, we still have to conclude that the signs are pointing downwards. We have not turned the corner on major issues such as energy, climate change, loss of biodiversity, decline in fisheries, deforestation.
0: The U.N. panel even warns that mass extinction is possible. Of course, there have been bleak warnings about the fate of the Earth before. Among the most famous of pessimistic predictions were from biologist Paul Ehrlich. In 1968, Ehrlich wrote, The Population Bomb a landmark book in which he predicted that as a result of an exploding population, by 1985, quote, the battle to feed all of humanity will be over, and that in the 1970s and 80s, hundreds of millions of people will starve to death in spite of any crash programs embarked upon now. Paul Ehrlich is Bing Professor of Population Studies at Stanford University now, and we called him up to see if he's changed his perspective. Hi, Professor Ehrlich.
8: Nice to be here
0: you know, this UN report is um, pretty pessimistic uh, and you've got a history of being something of a professional pessimist. Is it time for me to start walking down the street with a sign saying the end is near?
8: Uh, I think it's time for people to take very seriously the things that we're doing to our life support systems. In other words, it's it's not just me that's pessimistic. In 1993, 58 academies of science said, that is basically all the academies of science in the world said, if we don't change our ways, we're doomed. And 1,500 of the world's leading scientists got out a statement called World Scientists Warning to Humanity, said exactly the same thing. It wasn't covered in the press at all. In other words, the scientific community has been trying to warn society about the various things that we're facing. And, uh, it just hasn't penetrated the media or uh, or certainly governments.
0: But back in 1968, when you wrote The Population Bomb, you wrote that the battle to feed all of humanity is over. That was, what, 40 years ago?
8: Forty years ago, and perfectly correct. We still have about a billion people who don't get enough food to function properly. Uh, in 1968, in the same book, I warned about the possibilities of global warming, and that that's something the scientific community known about since about 1898. In none of this stuff is new. Uh, it's just a massive report happened to come out of the U.N. saying all the trends are in the wrong direction. And they're perfectly correct. But it's something, again, that the scientific community has been saying as loud as it could for a long time.
0: So we are facing an existential crisis.
8: We're facing a crisis in which the way many of us are able to live will not be possible for the vast majority of people sometime in the uh, relatively near future, hopefully after I'm dead, but uh, maybe not.
0: Well, according to the U.N. report, by 2050, there'll be you know, about 9.7 billion people on the planet. Is that in excess of the carrying capacity of the planet?
8: Certainly in anything like today's lifestyles. You know, if you try and move to a battery, what one of my colleagues calls a battery chicken type of world, in which everybody has the absolute minimum required to keep them alive, it might be possible.
0: Did you say battery chicken?
8: Battery chickens are these situations where you raise billions of chickens in one building where every chicken has, uh, you know, a full square foot and just is in there and gets fed uh, and uh, grows. That's that's the battery chicken world where everybody is living the absolute minimum standard of living so you can maximize the number of people. If we want, for example, the United States to go on for thousands and thousands of years, the way to do it isn't to see how many people we can cram in in the next 20. You've got to remember we're at about 6.6 billion now, talking about adding about 2.5 billion more. First of all, 2.5 billion is 500 million people more than were on the planet when I was born in 1932. So we're adding more than existed when I was born. Second, the next 2.5 billion are going to be a lot more expensive to take care of environmentally than the previous $2.5 billion. because, of course, people are smart. They, they farm the best land first. They, you know, you can't get oil by sticking a pointed stick in the ground in Pennsylvania anymore. You've got to drill down a couple of miles. And uh, water has to be transported long distances. And I think anybody who reads the newspapers and can count can see that we're in deep trouble just from the numbers of people versus the resources that are available. Ask him in Atlanta, uh, where they're running out of uh, water. Ask them in Southern California where climate change is helping huge fires to devastate areas. We, I was just in Brazil and the Pantanal swamp area was burning and the Cerrado, the, the savanna areas south of the Amazon, were burning in record droughts. So, uh, you know, you, can just, you just have to look around and see what's happening.
0: But, well, Professor, I can't resist the, the word play temptation. That is, you know, you say battery chicken, some people say chicken little.
8: Yeah, well, they say Chicken Little, but again, uh, I warned 40 years ago about climate change. What are we having going on now? I warned 40 years ago about emergent diseases. What do we have now? I warned 40 years ago uh, that if we didn't do something about uh, about the population situation, people would still be hungry. We Well, we've got many, many millions of people hungry. So Chicken Little says the sky is falling. Just remember, maybe Chicken Little is right.
0: According to the U.N. report, each person on the planet needs about 22 hectares. But I'm thinking, you know, there's Hong Kong, there's New York, you know. Uh...
8: Well, yeah, that's right. The the, the thing you got to remember is the people in New York don't live on New York. They import stuff from acres all over the rest of the world. In other words, it's, it's a common fact that's actually been named by the scientific community the Netherlands fallacy, the idea that the whole planet can be as crowded as the Netherlands And, of course, it's not people versus area, it's people versus the resources that support them. And those resources include things called sinks, like the capacity of the atmosphere to absorb carbon dioxide. That's a very important resource for the planet. It's one we're overusing at the moment.
0: Are we as a species capable of comprehending and dealing with problems of this magnitude?
8: Sure we are. We're perfectly capable of it. We're the dominant animal on the planet uh... we're in many ways brilliant but we haven't gotten the political and ethical will together to do the things we ought to be doing and the educational system is deteriorating the media don't generally cover this stuff i mean if you look at the top stories in the media how often do they deal with the fact that we're within decades of losing our civilization It's almost never mentioned there are some things now it's coming out but for instance you would think watching the media today that the only big threat is climate change. But, of course, many people feel, for instance, that the number of toxic substances we're adding to the environment are an even bigger threat. Uh, In many uh, villages in the Arctic and subarctic, there are only half as many male babies being born as female babies, and it's likely a sign of the hormone-mimicking chemicals that we manufacture, release into the environment, and that are carried by the climate system to the poles. The threat of emerging diseases, the first one, of course, has been AIDS, the first really big one in recent decades, but the more people we have, the greater the threat, particularly the ones that are malnourished, of new plagues taking over, a new flu and so on. So that's considered a huge threat. And the loss of biodiversity, the other organisms that are the working parts of our life support systems, uh, is also a huge threat. I mean, even economists are looking at issues like, are we consuming too much now? In other words, the the, the scholarly community is enormously concerned, and the general public and particularly our so-called leadership is utterly ignorant. So it's not a great situation.
0: So it has not reached the tipping point
8: We don't know. But what other choice do we have but to try and change so that if we haven't reached the tipping point, we don't reach it. Because the tipping point is going to be miserable, and uh, uh, an awful lot of people will die, and uh, lifestyles will change very, very dramatically. And uh, we don't want to do that. So, you know, I, I can't be incredibly optimistic about what we're going to do. But you can say that societies can change very rapidly when the time is ripe. Look, for instance, how rapidly the Soviet Union disappeared when none of us expected it to. When I was a kid, lynchings were common in the south of the United States. They aren't anymore. In other words, things can change very rapidly. We don't fully understand why, but when the time is right, they change. And I think that your chore in mind is to try and ripen the time.
0: Well professor it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much.
8: Hey, it's a pleasure to me too. Thank you very much.
0: Stanford professor Paul Ehrlich's new book which he co-authored with his wife Anne Ehrlich is called The Dominant Animal: Human Evolution and the Environment. Coming up, boldly going where Hollywood has gone before. Stay tuned to Living on Earth.
3: Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. And from Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International.
0: You're listening to an encore edition of Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Many of the things we use to wash bathrooms, unblock drains, and make ovens spick and span contain toxic ingredients. Lurking underneath many a kitchen cabinet are chemicals hazardous to your health. For professional cleaners, many of whom are women and many of them immigrants, daily repeated exposure can make them sick. There are safer alternatives. Clean and green are the new watchwords for many household products advertised on TV these days. But getting the word out to non-English speaking workers can be difficult. That's where a housecleaning co-op in Boston comes in, as Catherine Elton reports.
9: In the basement office of the community organization, the Brazilian Women's Group, several Brazilian house cleaners sit around tables and discuss the agenda for an upcoming meeting. The women are part of Vida Verde, a new green cleaning cooperative that began last December. Monica Cinelli, a house cleaner and the co-op's coordinator, helped launch Vida Verde. She says house cleaning is the number one occupation for the women of Massachusetts' large Brazilian immigrant community.
4: I think it's because it's the flexibility of uh, the hours and the money. The payment is so, it's good.
9: But along with those benefits, co-op member Carlo De Castro says, came some problems. I feel hairy all day long and dizzy. At
1: the end of the day, you can smell anything because you just lost your sensitive for smell. I can feel better when I'm stopped to use but I, I know if I'm continuing use that for months and years, I know that's making me feel very sick.
9: Castro wasn't the only one feeling this way. Monica Chinelli worked with immigrant activists interviewing hundreds of Brazilian house cleaners. She heard many complaints like these and about respiratory problems, nosebleeds, fainting, and skin rashes. Some of the women said they felt so bad they considered quitting the business. So Cinelli and the activists started promoting green cleaning products. Their work caught the attention of epidemiologist David Gute of Tufts University. When he received a grant from the National Institute of Occupational Safety and Health to study immigrant occupational health issues, a chunk of it went to jumpstart the Vita Verde Cooperative.
5: What we hope to get is a group of uh, co-op members who will take seriously the responsibilities of uh, protecting their own health and also protecting, uh, obviously, the environmental health of of the clients' homes in, in which they work, I think that there will be a greater sense of control of their own, of their own lives and businesses um, as a result of this.
9: Research shows there's a higher incidence of asthma among professional cleaners as compared to other workers. And other studies examine indoor air pollutants that could affect human health. A four-year study recently completed at the University of California, Berkeley, looked at whether routine use of common cleaning products and air fresheners affect indoor air quality. Researchers studied solvents called glycol ethers, a toxic air contaminant and common ingredient in cleaning products. They also looked at other solvents called terpenes. They are the seemingly innocuous ingredients which give products lemon or pine scent. But terpenes can create dangerous formaldehyde when they mix with ozone found in indoor air. William Nazaroff was the lead scientist on the Berkeley study.
5: What we found was that the levels of exposure both to glycol ethers and to secondary pollutants from terpene use could be high enough to warrant further attention and some concern, especially under scenarios where high amounts of the products are being used in spaces that are small and not very well ventilated.
9: But Nazaroff is quick to point out that there is still a lot that hasn't been proven about the relationship between these toxic air contaminants and the health problems of house cleaners.
5: At this point, we're not able to connect the dots to say that the chemical exposures are, in fact, the reason that occupational asthma is elevated in this group. But more work is going to have to be done to try to fill in the gaps between those two endpoints.
9: And without that epidemiological data to prove a connection... Tufts' David Goot says not much can be done to force a change in the formulations of the products.
5: There has always been this uneasy tension uh, in the regulatory community about when is a chemical safe for use. The prevailing wisdom has has usually been a chemical is safe until proven guilty. The vast majority of of chemicals, either newly developed or new combinations of, of chemicals, are not screened in any meaningful way. Prior to release.
9: Vida Verde co-op members aren't the only ones unwilling to wait for science and government regulations to catch up with their concerns. The demand for natural home cleaning products has taken off recently. And several states now require janitors clean schools and other public buildings with products that meet the standards of the nonprofit certifying company, Green Seal. Currently, there is no certification standard for home cleaning products. But Green Seal expects to start certifying these products, too, in the coming months. Members of the Vita Verde co-op, however, opted for another approach. On a recent morning, Monica Cinelli and another co-op member make their own natural cleaning products. Members take turns and mix enough for others to use when they clean.
3: We made the amazing... Now we're going to make magic. Six cups of water
4: and six uh, cups of vinegar. Okay?
9: They use recycled plastic bottles to store the products and put on Vida Verde labels to identify them. And then they're ready to use them in their clients' homes. In a large Victorian house outside of Boston... Monica Cinelli starts to clean in the kitchen.
4: First I use uh, Fantasque, that is a, a product that we made with uh, soap, borax. After that, to, to rinse, I use uh, amazing, that is something with water and vinegar, because vinegar dissolve the, the soap films. Homeowner,
9: Katrine Koifer, says she is happy with the results. I mean, I have young children. I'm glad that they're not exposed to any um, chemicals in the house. It's good for
3: our family, and it's good for the environment as a whole. So I don't have any reason not to do it.
9: Members of Vida Verde say that since they switched products, their health problems have disappeared. And co-op members are hoping to convince more house cleaners to change the way they clean. They're making presentations to house cleaners around Massachusetts to show them how to make their own natural products and why. For Living on Earth, I'm Katherine Elton in Boston.
0: from chemicals under the counter to a close encounter of a different kind.
10: E.T.
0: Phone home. Extraterrestrials are extra popular on the big screen. In fact, a third of the top grossing movies are science fiction films. Think Jurassic Park, The Invasion of the Body Snatchers, A.I., Blade Runner, Spider-Man... Sci-fi flicks feature flights of fantasy that can transport us beyond our imaginations, but not all the science in the movies measures up to the standards of Sidney Perkowitz. He's a physicist at Emory University and author of the book Hollywood Science, Movies, Science, and the End of the World. Professor Perkowitz, welcome to Living on Earth.
11: My pleasure, Bruce. Thanks for having me. Or, or should I say, um, to Barata Nikto? Well, that would win you a favor with a lot of science fiction fans, that's for sure.
0: Clatu, Barada, That's from the 1951 classic, uh, The Day the Earth Stood Still. You have a picture of it uh, right on your book.
6: Clatu, Barada,
0: Nikto.
11: What does Clatu, Barada, Nikto mean? Apparently, it's inst- instructions to the deadly robot Gort to do the right thing after his boss Clatu has been shot down by the military.
0: Well, let's listen to some of uh, The Day the Earth Stood Still. This is the original.
6: We interrupt this program to give you a bulletin just received from one of our naval units at sea. A large object traveling at supersonic speed is headed over the North Atlantic toward the east coast of the United States.
0: You say in your book, and I think rightly, that this is a science fiction classic. What in your mind makes it a classic?
11: At the time, which was the 50s, and we have to cast our mind back to what that meant. We were in the middle of the Cold War, and it was just a few years after an atomic bomb had first been exploded. So this is a movie that has some science in it, or pseudoscience, but really it has a message. Be very careful with nuclear weapons. And that makes it a classic because of the message it carries, but also because it's a good, tightly constructed movie.
2: I came here to give you these facts, but if you threaten to extend your violence... This earth of yours will be reduced to a burned-out cinder.
0: Science fiction has been a a huge part of the film industry from the, well, almost from the very beginning.
11: I was surprised when I researched it. If if you do the, the sums, it turns out there's been at least one major science fiction film made per month since 1902. And 1902 is not very long after movies began. So yes, it's been a continuing thread for decades and decades. The one I remember is from, I think, the 20s. It's Metropolis, silent film. I put that on my uh, 10 best list because it was such a strong and far-seeing film. Although it was made in the 20s, it has things in it that still many directors could be envious of. Like what? First of all, the powerful use of of black and white. Of course, that's all they had. But this director, Fritz Lang, really knew how to use shades of gray. Secondly, just the the audacity, of the projection. It talked about technology 100 years in the future that we still don't have.
0: Let's talk about some of the science fiction movies that really, well, for lack of a better word, they're real stinkers. Okay. Uh, One of the ones topping your list is The Core,
2: It was a secret government program known as Project Destiny. We're building a weapon that could generate targeted seismic events. Designed to use earthquakes to attack our enemies. I'm getting a seismic reading. It was a perfect, untraceable weapon. Destiny is a go. Until something went wrong. The core of the Earth has stopped spinning. Without it, radiation will create superstorms. Microwaves will literally cook our planet.
11: I
0: hate when that happens.
11: You know, it, it just makes a bad day. It could ruin a weekend. <laughs> and in this movie, it ruins the whole earth. So they put in this premise, and I think every movie is allowed one premise. Even if it's wrong, you're allowed one premise. So that's their premise. But every statement about science after that premise is dead wrong. It's remarkable how wrong this movie is. But is good science really the object of science
0: fiction? Isn't it just, well, to entertain the movies are about making money?
11: Bruce, I think that's a great point. I think we have to recognize that the Hollywood studios are not in the business of making instructional educational films. They want to entertain. My take on this as a scientist is we should accept that fact and then use the movies as they are and use the science in them to teach some science. Even if the science is wrong, you can use it to teach science, and I think that would be a smart approach for the future.
0: Let's listen to, well, there's no mistaking what this film is, Of course, this is from Stanley Kubrick's extraordinary film, 2001 A Space Odyssey.
11: People who study the subject seriously say that that movie and Close Encounters of the Third Kind are the two films that lifted science fiction out of B-movie status into major movie status. So what you say is absolutely right. And again, those of us who saw the movie when it first came out remember being stunned by what were just the most remarkable special effects you could imagine at the time.
0: Some science fiction movies have made a real contribution to our consciousness and have consequence. I'm, I'm thinking of the movie Soylent Green.
8: New York City in the year 2022... Nothing runs anymore. Nothing works. But the people are the same. And the people will do anything to get what they need.
10: This is the police.
8: What they need most is Soylent Green. The supply
10: of Soylent Green has been
0: exhausted. I think it helped give birth to the modern environmental movement.
11: Yes, that, that seems to be very, very true. That movie goes back to the 1970s. It's about a world set... Uh, in the 2000s, 2020 or so, in which uh, environmental badness has really ruined the earth. You can't grow enough crops to feed people. And uh, that was an example of a movie that pointed out to quite a wide audience the consequences of misusing our resources. What is the secret of Silent
10: Green?
11: I'm not going to tell the secret, but boy. No, let's not tell. So a lot of people have given that movie a bunch of credit for starting the green movement, people thinking about the environment. And other movies since then have picked that up. Soylent Green it was you know, about, well, global
0: warming too, right?
11: Absolutely. Everyone in the movie comments on the fact that winter has gone. Uh, there's no more winter. It's always too hot. Air conditioning is an unimaginable luxury. And that's because of global warming. Also, there, uh, there's not enough food uh, because global warming has killed plankton. And in fact, there's now scientific evidence that that is happening. So that movie was quite foreseeing.
0: Science fiction movies really can, and I think the best ones do, excite the imagination. And then they have consequence in the real world. I'm thinking of something you wrote in your book. You wrote about uh, MIT scientist uh, Cynthia Brazel. Who, uh, who designed the robot called Kismet, the most expressive robot of its time. And she said she got the idea, well, from
11: R2-D2. Isn't that remarkable? Uh, and even when the movie Science is not correct or maybe could be correct but doesn't yet exist, it has inspired young people to become scientists. I think that's one spinoff we don't recognize as being a good, powerful effect of science fiction films. I don't know that any sociologist has studied this, but there is tons and tons of anecdotal evidence that scientists who watch science fiction early become inspired toward that kind of career. That happened to me and many, many other people.
0: Well, okay, Professor, I want to thank you very much. It's really been terrific. I've had a great time. Or maybe I should say instead of
11: goodbye, I should say... Hasta la vista, baby. And may the force be with you, Bruce.
0: Or as Mel Brooks says in Spaceballs, may the Schwartz be with you. Sidney Perkowitz is author of the book Hollywood Science, Movies, Science, and the End of the World. week in Lane's Cove, a small rocky inlet on the northern coast of the Bay State, Massachusetts. On a warm summer eve, a small band of friends gathered together at sunset to make music by the sea. Living on Earth's Ashley Hearn captured the scene and the sound of this merry troupe. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Ashley O'Hearn, Bobby Bascom, Eileen Balinski, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Mitra Taj, and Jeff Young. With help from Sarah Calkins and Marilyn Govoni. Our interns are Kim Gittleson and Jessica Lee Smith. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Luke Borders engineered this week's program. Allison Lyrish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us at LOE.org. Steve Kerwood is our executive producer. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Thanks for listening.
3: The Skoll Foundation, supporting social entrepreneurs around the world. Uncommon heroes dedicated to the common good. Learn more at Skoll.org. And PaxWorld Mutual Funds, socially and environmentally sustainable investing. PaxWorld for tomorrow. On the web at PaxWorld.com.
10: PRI Public Radio International.